On today's morning show, we are examining a very significant facet of the Second World War and of what allowed Americans, along with other allies, uh, to be victorious in that enormous and brutal conflict. One facet of our war effort that tends not to be fully acknowledged, nor appreciated, nor understood, is the incredibly significant role played by women in America's war effort. And not just uh, on the home front, but also in very direct participation in the U.S. military. It turns out that 350,000 American women served in uniform in World War II and in a wide array of capacities. This extraordinarily important and fascinating story is told in a marvelous new book called Valiant Women, the Extraordinary American Service Women Who Helped Win World War II. The book is written by Lena Andrews, a military analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, and she in the past has worked at the RAND Corporation and at the United States Institute of Peace. And this beautifully written book is her first book. It's published by Mariner Books, again titled Valiant Women, the Extraordinary American Service Women Who Helped Win World War II. Lena Andrews, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I am so glad to be talking with you. And I must say that I have enjoyed your book far more than I expected to. I mean, it's not that I picked up the book with any sense of, of dread. I mean, I, I, I've, I fully expected it to be interesting, but I just didn't expect it to be this interesting. I mean, it's an incredible story. <laughs> and the more I read, the more I realized that this is a story about which most of us have only kind of a passing acquaintance. And uh, uh, I really appreciate the thorough fashion with which you, you tell this story. Uh, one thing that intrigues me is why you took up this challenge of telling this story. Did anything in particular prompt you to uh, to want to do this? Yeah, it's a it's. I think you laid it out perfectly with your question, which is, I think, like most Americans, I knew about, or I should say, I thought I knew about the story of women in World War II which is to say I'd heard about Rosie the Riveter and women in manufacturing. I'd maybe heard a couple things about women who broke codes or the women who spied behind enemy lines. And I loved those books and I loved those stories. And I thought that's where it ended. Um, and this is speaking as someone who's spent over a decade reading and thinking about World War II. But what I found kind of serendipitously, and this, which I stumbled on uh, at a, a D.C. monument called the uh, Women's Military Memorial, um, is that the reality is that the scale and the scope of women's contributions in World War II was just so much larger than that. You know, as you said at the top, over 350,000 American women served in uniform. And to give listeners a sense of how big that is, that's about the size of today's active duty Navy. It's a huge number. Um, But even more impactful than the numbers themselves was the actual content of their contributions. So these were women who are at the very heart of support operations that underwrote Allied victory, and they were doing things like fixing planes and tanks and redeploying them in the Pacific or making the maps that helped forces in Normandy find their way through the backwoods of France, or even things like training men how to use their guns. I mean, these are fundamental things that women were doing 
that allowed for allied progress and victory. And so this essential work was really the backbone of the battlefield. As a military analyst, as someone who studies militaries, really stood out to me that this was an underappreciated element of women's work in World War II. And I felt like, you know what, it's time we give these women their deserved credit. And the book is very much a product of that. Right. And the book, of course, also is a product of what you do for the Central Intelligence Agency. That is, you are a military analyst. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of this book and maybe what makes it, I guess, even deeper than I expected it to be. I expected it to be a series of inspiring stories about various women who, who were part of the Second World War. But, and, and that in and of itself would have been great. But, but beyond that, your book also is written by somebody who understands the work of the military and in particular understands facets of the military that the rest of us do, do not begin to understand. And I think, so for instance, you know, you are in a position to write about the incredible challenges that were confronting uh, the U.S. military at the outset of, of the Second World War, uh, more than somebody who would come at this from the outside as someone uh, wanting to share inspiring stories, but maybe not necessarily understanding fully how these stories, how these women fit into uh, our overall military structure and effort. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, unfortunately, as a member of the intelligence community, I can't talk much about my work, but I can say that I would not exist had it not been for these women. You know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, and those giants are the women who served uh, in World War II. And, you know, I've spent a lifetime thinking about military issues. It's what I did my first you know, papers on in college all the way through till today. And the underlying theme of all that work is and is something that I think, as you mentioned, very few Americans have a good sense of, which is that support operations are essential. And, you know, if you talk to frontline forces, even today, they will tell you that exact thing. Um, you know, for every person on the front line with who's actually doing the combat, doing the fighting, there are 10, 50, sometimes 100 people behind them uh, supporting that operation, ensuring that they have the equipment and the tools and the training at the place that they need them, uh, you know, when they need them. And without that, they can't do their jobs. Mm. Uh, so, you know, this is something that is just fundamental to military operations. You see it in every conflict. Um, even, you know, Hannibal and Napoleon talk about the importance of support, support operations. And it's been something that's really animated my own thinking about warfare and what is essential for victory. Um, so to find women in those exact places was, for me, a sort of win-win. It was suddenly like, oh, I can tell an incredible military story, and I can tell it from the perspective of women who are sort of underappreciated, not just because they're women, but because the roles and the things that they're doing are not something we necessarily appreciate about warfare more broadly. Exactly. So I'm glad that that came through. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a trick to write, but I really am delighted that, um, that it came through, and I hope other readers will uh, see that as well. Right. I mean, I, I have a feeling uh, that when one, if, if, if all you know about World War II is is watching movies about World War II. I mean, ev even if a film acknowledges in some respect these roles that you were just talking about, 
it's still you know, it's not George C. Scott and John Wayne don't 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 play those guys or, or women. I mean, they, they do not. They are not in the spotlight of sort of cinematic tellings of of the Second World War. And your and your book is is such a, an important contribution to a, a greater understanding of all it took for us to be victorious in that in that conflict. I do want to say. Uh, I mean, in some ways, what I said earlier might have implied that this is not a very personal book. And, of course, that would be a, a gross misunderstanding. I mean, there is a lot about this book that is that is deeply personal. And a bit to my surprise, uh, the book actually begins in a deeply personal place. And I would love to hear you talk about uh, that very opening of the book uh, in which we we in a sense meet a 98 year old woman that you you spoke with. Uh, tell our listeners about her and and why the book opens in this way. Well, I'm so glad you brought it up because one of the key things that felt really important to me in this process was to make these stories feel individual, feel real, feel tactile to folks. And a huge part of that came from the fact that I was able you know, joyously, inspiringly, wonderfully to interview several living veterans of World War, women veterans of World War II. One of them is Merle Caples, who you're talking about um, at the very opening anecdote of the book. And we actually interviewed by Zoom, believe it or not. She, at the time, she's 98. Um, <laughs> she is an incredible person. She had a very rough upbringing during the Depression, as many women did. Um, I think people forget just how sort of um, horrible the Depression was for many people, and Merle was one of them. Um, but she, you know, she graduated from high school just as the war was starting and saw it, like many women, as an opportunity for two things. One, to be a patriot, to sign up when the country called to do the thing that um, she was being asked of by her country. And also she saw it as an opportunity for economic and uh, professional mobility. And so, you know, she moved and started working at a factory like so many women. And she ultimately ends up joining the Marine Corps, um, which I'll tell you right now, the women in the Marine Corps had a, had a pretty rough time. The Marines didn't want them there at the beginning, and they, they made that very clearly known. Um, but women like Merle, who ended up working uh, mainly in the supply infrastructure, so she was the guy who was, I should say, she was the gal who was outfitting guys um, to go overseas. She was giving them their equipment and their guns and making sure that they were had everything they needed. Um, you know, she was uh, doing her job. She was doing it well, and she was doing it in the face of extraordinary mistreatment on many occasions. So uh, Merle is an incredible woman, and she's also totally reflective of the women that I was able to speak with in the sense that she was whip smart, uh, you know, a fantastic memory and a great storyteller. So I was, as an author, it was a dream come true. And as much as I possibly could, I really tried to infuse the book with those stories to give readers a sense of who these women were. And I'll, I'll bet that a lot of them sound very familiar because they're mm. probably just like your grandmothers, your aunts, mm. your great aunts. Uh, a lot of the women in your lives who, you know, you probably uh, remember as being particularly plucky and particularly interesting are the women who signed up to serve in World War II. Right, and part of that so-called greatest generation. You you, you tell mm-hmm. us that, uh, that, that women like Merle uh, were surprised by your interest. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it may have been her or, or someone else you talked to who, who actually said, thank you for even thinking of me. I mean, who 
who regarded what they did with a, a, a very deep humility. But you go on to say something so interesting. You write, too often, however, the reservations of the women I spoke with uh, were tinged with a troubling undercurrent, a feeling that the work they did was not real war work. Many seemed to believe their contribution was too small, too peripheral, too feminine to count in a meaningful way. I mean, it's, boy, it's heartbreaking to read those words because, I mean, one can well imagine how somebody back home or somebody uh, not quite so enlightened, you know, might, might harbor those, those kind of feelings, those kind of dismissive views. But to think that some of these women, uh, at least to some extent, uh, did not fully grasp the significance of what they had contributed to the war effort, that really surprised me and, and made me sad, as it clearly made you sad as well. Yeah, I mean, it is, it, it, and I start explicitly for that reason, because I, I think we should all feel a sort of sadness about the fact that we have forgotten these women, we have forgotten their stories, and we owe them a great debt, right? I think it's the combination of those two things, is recognizing that they did something incredible, and we have not honored them for it. Um, that I do hope that readers feel the weight of that, uh, because I felt the weight of it. You know, as I said, I was someone who studied World War II for a very, very long time, and it took me quite a while to stumble on these stories and to fully understand it. So, you know, I sympathize with that feeling. It's why I included it in the book. Um, and I do think, you know, we, we, we have to remember why these women didn't tell their stories. At the end of World War II, there was a huge sense of, you know, people probably feel this way now in the, in the aftermath of a major pandemic, of wanting to go back to normal. And at the time, that meant women in the home, women as homemakers, uh, you know, back to the kitchens and the vacuums and the day-to-day life of all of these things. And they were, in some cases, not just choosing to go home, but they were forced to go home. Uh, you know, men were given back their jobs, and they were sort of told, you know, thank you for your service, go back. Um, and that you know, that is just a reality that they were faced with. But when confronted with that message, many of them also meant, thought that meant don't talk about it. Don't share it. It's not important. If it was, you know, we would have acknowledged it. And so I think for me, a big part of this is asking readers to think about why we don't ask women their stories um, and what we can learn when we do, because it was really heartbreaking to hear so many of these women say, wow, I can't believe you thought of me or thank you so much. This is this is great. No one's ever asked me these questions, um, you know, and even people in their families not necessarily asking them those questions. So I do encourage readers, if you, if you have that feeling, to, to go, through your, go through your Rolodex, so to speak, or even reach out in the communities that you're in and try and talk to these women because there are lots of stories like these that are really worth hearing. I think we just the message that these women sometimes get is that they're not, we're not asking, so they don't need to tell us. Right. And of course, compounding the sorrow <laughs> in terms of, of women who were such an important uh, contributing factor to the Second World War, to the Allied effort, is the fact that so many of them by now are gone. And I should mm-hmm. think that, that for you, it made it all the more precious that you had the opportunity to, to speak with a, with a handful of women who, uh, who actually were part of this extraordinary story. Yes, I mean, this is the sad reality is that we're losing veterans of this war and especially the small group of women veterans that are still living every day. Um, They're disappearing. Uh, Just in the course of my research, several women passed away. 
Uh, and it was heartbreaking, obviously, for me to hear that, you know, and not least because I was hoping they would get to read the book before they did. Um, and I hope that wherever they are, they're very proud of, of having their stories in the book. Um, but, you know, even more commonly, and I, I say this early on in the book, it's it wasn't that they weren't there, it's that they didn't remember. Um, and, you know, it, that is really hard when you have a relative say, they did this incredible thing, but they're facing, you know, the onset of dementia or Alzheimer's, and they can't remember what they did. And that's some in some ways even harder, because you know that the story is living somewhere in their minds, but nobody took the time to ask them and get it out on paper. Um, or, you know, on a tape or whatnot. So fortunately, there are lots of incredible families who are doing this hard work. And I should say that um, the women veterans community more broadly has done an extraordinary job of keeping these stories alive. And I'm very grateful that they have. Uh, so there are repositories of this information, but increasingly it's getting harder to find women. And it was so special for me to find the few that I did um, and to talk to them and their families and get the firsthand anecdotes, which are the best. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the best parts of the book is when they tell you a funny story or, um, you know, tell you what the, co- the color of their lipstick was called, which for Merle was Montezuma Red. Um, you know, you can't get that from a memoir or from whatever. It's, it's really it's really so important to ask them and to get those little textural details. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Lena Andrews about her marvelous uh, book, Valiant Women the extraordinary American service women who helped win World War II. The book helps us understand the significant role played by uh, over 350,000 American women who served in uniform in World War II in a wide array of different capacities, and capacities that were not peripheral, uh, off to the side, or insignificant. Uh, As you say, Lena Andrews, in your book, that belief is groundless, <laughs> and your book proceeds uh, to uh, correct the record. And you also say something very intriguing, that your book is not only about lifting up these women, but uh, you also write, it is also an invitation to look at this old war in a different way. Uh, when we explore women's roles, it, it really tells us something about not only the unprecedented scale of the Second World War, but also the unprecedented, uh, unprecedented way in which this war was fought, how it was fought. Let's talk about both of those matters. They are really significant. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we often don't think about is the, the scale of this conflict. I mean, we can see the numbers uh, on paper, but that doesn't mean we fully grasp the scope of it and of the place in which America found itself as World War II was beginning. Uh, Explain to our listeners, uh, in a sense, the dire straits in which we found ourselves in terms of preparedness for this uh, oncoming conflict. It's a great question, and I think it is so often forgotten. You know, we won the war, so we're sort of, many people think, well, of course we must have been prepared for it. Uh, but if you go back and look, particularly in the late 30s, at the memoirs and the anecdotes and the planning processes, of which I spent, you know, spent most of my career looking at, uh, we were not prepared for World War II. We were coming out of decades at that point of a sort of isolationist mindset. There were, of course, a few leaders at the top, Roosevelt being chief among them, who understood that we were probably going to be getting involved in this war well before it arrived on our shores. 
But overwhelmingly, the American public was not interested in fighting World War II. We had just come out of World War I. We were just sort of recovering from fighting this far-flung European conflict. Um, and they weren't interested in spending on the military, which means that, you know, in, in 1939, 1940, we had not made the investments really that we needed to in some of the key projects and key doctrines that would end up being essential to the war. Um, no one knew this better than George Marshall, the incredible George Marshall, who was a visionary for many reasons, um, one of which was because he was fixated not on equipment and not on the technical aspects of the war, but on manpower. He knew that this was going to be a huge war that covered the entire globe uh, and required a lot of people. And it was part of the reason that he was one of the first converts, the first most willing uh, senior American military commanders to think, hmm, maybe women might actually be necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe minorities more broadly might also be, uh, you know, necessary to fight this war because he was just looking at the scale of it. And he had fought in World War One. He had seen the shortages that we'd faced. And he knew what was coming down the pike. Right. Uh, now, obviously, you know, making that happen was uh, was a much bigger undertaking. But that visionary uh, ability to see manpower as a key thing uh, for winning, fighting and winning the war was was a huge benefit for the United States. My uh, my my Kindle copy of your book that I read, uh, I couldn't quite get the very top of the pages to appear on the screen. I only mention that because it interrupted my reading of one really crucial passage in the book in which you talk about how uh, the requirements of this impending war necessitated the increase in manpower in three different sectors or three different mm -hmm. areas. I could read that the first was the industrial sector, that we needed to step up manpower in order to make all of this equipment and so on. What would be the other two facets in which dramatic increase in manpower was necessary? Well, it's a perfect way to phrase the question because um, it is, you know, the remaining two are the ones that military commanders most oftenly fixate on when they're preparing for war. So, of course, manufacturing matters, and it matters a lot in this war because, you know, a big part of the reason why the Allies are so su successful is because the U.S. is able to just produce an incredible amount of equipment, um, unparalleled even to this day. So that's, of course, important. But from a military perspective, the two sort of key components of manpower are what is sometimes referred to as tooth and tail. Tooth are the combat forces. Those are the guys with the guns on the front lines. Um, and we needed a lot of those, and we particularly needed them toward the end of the war when we were making a huge push in both Europe and the Pacific. Um, and that tends to be in, 19, in the 1940s, you know, white men of a certain age, usually between 20 and 40, who can do the fighting. The tail of the military is the support function. Those are the types of jobs that I was talking about earlier on, uh, you know, the training, the equipment builders, the people who are typing up classified messages and breaking codes, all of that stuff on the back end of the frontline forces that allows those forces to do their jobs. So, you know, one of my favorite examples of this in World War II is a woman named Mary Sears. If you haven't Googled her, you should. She's incredible. Um, she had an extremely rare expertise in ocean tides and seafloors, of all things. Um, and she ends up advising Navy admirals about where to land Navy ships during the Pacific campaign. So if you can think of a more important role, please tell me. I can't. It's an incredibly <laughs> important uh, task, you know, and she just happens to have the expertise. But she's in Washington. You know, she's doing the intelligence reports that are getting fed up to the admirals, and very few people know about this incredible woman. But without her, 
the ships that are doing amphibious landings would not know where to land. Hmm. Um, so that's the tale, and that's where we find almost exclusively these incredible women like Mary Sears who are providing that, um, that essential support that connects the manufacturing and the frontline forces. Hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a long answer, but it's, it's you know, a complicated picture, which military commanders with their deal, grapple with with every war, and especially this one. Absolutely. I, and again, that's, I think, your own experience as a military analyst really well equips you to kind of tell that that facet of of this story something else i really appreciate about this portion of the book the the whole first part of the book is called the problem and uh, <laughs> and the problem is not just uh, you know hitler and mussolini and tojo but uh, the the problem is also garnering our forces uh, necessary uh, to meet this this foe, I, I want to just mention parenthetically that uh, there's a World War II museum in New Orleans that I visited uh, some years ago, and when you walk into this uh, museum, the first thing you see is this case that has on these I think glass shelves tiny toy soldiers, and there mm-hmm. are a number of toy soldiers there to represent the Axis forces in, I don't remember if it was 1939 or 1941, but, I mean, in each of those little toy soldiers in careful lines represents a certain number of Axis troops. And then uh, there is a shelf in which our military preparedness at that same moment in time is represented by a much smaller number of toy soldiers. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, to very graphically uh, convey uh, our the, the, the small size of our military at that point in time. I think your book tells us we were right around the, the size of the Romanian military <laughs> at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I wanted to say is that your book goes on to kind of spell out the dilemma faced by President Roosevelt in terms, I think you say it so well, Roosevelt had to find a way to prepare for one storm without creating another that is, mm-hmm. it was very clear to him uh, and, and to a certain select few that there was no way we were ultimately going to be able to escape this conflict. But with so many people adamantly opposed to the notion, he had to somehow move us forward towards this impending conflict without, in a sense, drawing too much attention to it. And you tell us that General Marshall was one of the key figures and somehow bringing this about. I mean, and when we think about what he accomplished, his significance, I'm not sure this part of his story uh, is adequately told. Yeah, I, you know, I love George Marshall for many reasons. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, a military analyst, so of course everyone has their favorite generals. One of mine is, is George Marshall. Um, one of them is certainly his appreciation for the sort of not less dynamic elements of military operations, which are essential, right? And as you said earlier, you know, we don't see movies about people classifying cables or, you know, nurses bringing men back to health and putting them back on the front lines, which don't seem that interesting until you really get into the meat of it and you realize that, well, of course, actually, when you're facing a manpower crisis, it really matters that injured troops are recovering and then can be redeployed to the front lines and matters 
you know, imminently in a way that is feels very pressing and very important. Um, and that's something that left off the page for me in a lot of the memoirs, both of the women who were doing those jobs and in memoirs of people like George Marshall, who were consumed with the issue of manpower and the issue of time and how to get enough people in the right amount of time quickly enough. Because as he predicted in, you know, in 1938, he says, I have a sense that this is going to become a real crisis for us in a couple of years. And lo and behold, you know, Pearl Harbor happens, the nation is catalyzed in a meaningful way, and they expect the military to just appear fully formed and ready to fight. And someone like Marshall understands, no, 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 that's a much more complicated picture. We have to find the people, we have to recruit them, we have to train them, we have to get the weapons and materials that they need, and then we start fighting the war. Uh, so, you know, it is, it's an incredibly complex enterprise for which I'm so glad we had someone like General Marshall in charge. Uh, but he's also not without his faults. While he eventually came around to the ad- idea of women, he did have to be pushed in that direction. He wasn't <laughs> necessarily enthusiastic about women. But the the two things that really moved him in that direction were extraordinary lobbying by a very committed group of civilians who were adamant um, that women serve in the military, including um, an extraordinary member of Congress called Edith North Rogers, um, and also women, civilian women who are basically taking up arms on their own in communities around the country and coming up with uh, impromptu uh, service opportunities, whether that was driving ambulances or signing up for air defense units. Uh, women were ready to serve, and he did eventually see that, but he it, it took him a little while to come around. Right, exactly. Um, you tell us that the uh, industrial foundation uh, necessary for this uh, undertaking uh, did begin to take shape. I mean, thankfully, I mean, or we would have been left utterly unprepared and and unable to become prepared uh, in, in in sufficient order or in sufficient time. So that that's something you 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 talk about, and you say in this mammoth industrial undertaking, women played a vital role. Uh, and, and, of course, we all know about Rosie the Riveter and her many sisters who played such a significant role. But I want you to talk about something else you say in this chapter. You say, but more, I mean, more than just, you know, manufacturing all of this, from the factory floor to the front lines, there needed to be people in uniform. And I think that's something we don't sort of think a lot about, but... I mean, maybe we think about it now post-COVID where the supply chain has been interrupted at so many points. But we are talking in a sense about sort of a similar supply chain. And it sounds like women were also a significant part of that effort, not just on the factory floor. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it's really critical for folks to understand that, well, Civilian women did incredible work, and, you know, we should all be very grateful that they signed up and drove to work in the manufacturing industry. That wasn't the end of the story. Um, and, in fact, women in uniform were useful, especially because they were in uniform, because they could be deployed to places, even in the United States, where we were desperate for people but couldn't necessarily order a civilian to move to, you know, pick your small town in Midwest United States where it's, you know, helpful to have 
a base, but not a lot of people want to move or uproot their entire lives. But if you sign up for the military, guess what? You don't get a choice. You're going uh, to the middle of nowhere and you're going to work there and you're going to do your job because that's what you signed up for. Um, so I, I can't remember actually if this even made it into the book, but at a certain point I had traced what was essentially the evolution of an airplane. What happens when, say, a B-29 comes off the manufacturing plant, uh, where does it go? It can't just sit in the middle of Michigan with nowhere to fly or go. And in fact, when you trace that evolution, you find many women along the way. So first you find women, say, training the pilot who's going to fly that B-29. Then you find women who are flying that B-29 from the manufacturing plant to the actual military base, base from where it will be deployed. Um, you find women in the field who are maintaining that plane. You find women at, you know, the air station back in the United States who are repairing it when it is broken. All of these things are essential steps on the supply chain, and we find women in each and every single one of them. So, again, it's it's this sort of un, uninteresting underbelly of the military that so few people understand. But when we look at women, we suddenly break open this really interesting story um, that, you know, is a, par- a critical part of World War II, but we just don't understand. Right. And I think those are some of my favorite stories, are stories that, yes, indeed, at a glance, we carelessly assume are not going to be interesting and indeed mm. are incredibly interesting when 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 we look at them closely and, and, and through uh, the discerning guidance of, of someone like you. For those of us, for those of you just joining me, uh, we're speaking with Lena Andrews, author of Valiant Women, the extraordinary uh, American service women who helped uh, win World War II. So uh, there is no way that we will be able to cover everything in your fascinating book, but we will touch on a, a couple of other fascinating matters. And one of them is the creation of the Women's Army Auxiliary Core. Uh, you tell us uh, uh, early in this chapter that the possibility of women actually being a very direct part of the military and perhaps even participating in combat had actually been considered and studied during and after uh, World War I. Uh, nevertheless, this was a huge step and a difficult step to be taken. And all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of people had to be convinced. Congress, the rest of the military, the American public, uh, that this was a good idea. And I'm so glad you mentioned Congresswoman Edith Nurse Rogers. What an extraordinary woman who helped play a part in the creation of of the WACs, the Women's uh, Army Auxiliary Corps. Uh, tell us more about just what a difficult hill this was to climb. Yeah, I mean, as you said, and I and I think we see this today, because the military is so fundamental to the fabric of our country, and particularly in these sort of high-stakes scenarios, there are a lot of conflicting views about what's the right approach to change when it comes to the military. And this was certainly the case in the 40s. And I have to say that to most Americans, the notion of a woman in uniform was totally alien. It was a totally foreign concept. Now, as you mentioned, and as the book points out, that's not totally historically correct, right? In in World War One, we had women serving um, actually abroad in the army as what we what were then called hello girls. They were answering uh, phones and connecting calls. And there were also women in the Navy called yeomanettes, 
what a clever, cute little name they had. Um, but they were doing more than clever and cute work. They were actually um, doing a lot of the administrative functions for the Navy during that time. But even with that precedent, um, and in large part because that precedent had been so felt so far away, it took a lot of lobbying and ultimately a lot of compromise. In the case of the WAC, which you mentioned was initially called the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, auxiliary being the key word there, um, because that was a compromise that women like Congresswoman Rogers had to make in their lobbying effort, which is that a lot of senior men in the in the military and in Congress simply did not want women to be fully a part of the army. Right? They could help, but we didn't want them to be, you know, real army soldiers. And it wasn't, in fact, until 1943 that that part of the legislation was changed after it became an administrative nightmare um, for the army. Which, of course, you know, Rogers and other women in charge, like Ovita Kalpabi, who read, who ran the corps had told them years before, uh, but it took it took experience for them to figure it out. And eventually they become a part of the women's, uh, you know, the army sort of proper. But it was very hard fought. And there were many women in the wings who were supporters of um, the sort of larger concept of women in the military who were critical, Edith North Rogers being one in the army's case and another woman named Margaret Chung in the Navy's case. Um, were just essential in pushing this over the the finish line. And thank goodness they were, because we would have been up the creek had it not been for many of these women, uh, particularly in the Army, where we see over 150,000 women put on uh, Army uniforms and Army khaki. It's an incredible number, and uh, we should be grateful they succeeded. Right. Although uh, you tell us uh, that this did not ultimately and completely succeed until May of 1942, so we were mm. well into the war uh, before, in fact, this this was passed. Uh, I really enjoy uh, the the portion of the book in which you tell us about Oveta Culp Hobby, uh, mm-hmm. who actually headed up the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, and uh, and I think you paint such a vivid picture of the difficult situation in which she found herself, in part in the way in which sort of her role had been conceived with sort of like strings attached or without her being given in a sense full military standing i mean it it was a it was already going to be tough but it was especially tough for her to effectively act as leader of the women's army auxiliary corps yeah and she's a you know again if you haven't googled her please do or just read the book whichever one you want uh, but she is uh, an extraordinary woman in every sense of the word. She came from the sort of Texas social elite. She was married to a very important politician uh, in Texas, and in, and in that capacity became the editor of the Houston Post and was sort of kind of well-known among the larger Texas and Washington elite. And she was selected because of her very polished image. She was a socialite in every sense of the word. And actually, one of my favorite stories that's in the book, and but is a great uh, anecdote in terms of demonstrating how funny some of the experiences were is is the story of her swearing in where she is this incredibly elegant woman she arrives at her swearing in to become the leader of what is the first and probably most important uh women's army unit uh you know in in the nation's history she's in a great blue suit and a beautiful wide-brimmed hat and it turns out that that is really hard to photograph so it becomes like an Abbott and Costello sketch where everyone is is running around trying to figure out how to get the lighting to work so that there's not a huge shadow over her face um, and they eventually get it but it is just you know in many ways a testament a small little anecdote but shows that even for this woman who is incredibly distinguished incredibly capable um, these little 
small things that you would never expect kept getting in the way of her fully realizing the vision. Um, and a lot of those controversies happened often and early. She didn't have the authority that she needed. She was a colonel running over, you know, what was essentially an, a, a division-sized unit of women, which is absurd. She, it wasn't the rank that she required. And so she was often, you know, cut out of the conversations about the women that she was supposed to be commanding. Um, so all of these things just wrap themselves up into a bit of a mess for her. Um, and fortunately, she was incredibly capable and a great bureaucrat, and she was able to get herself out of a lot of it. Uh, but she struggled, and she wrote about it in her papers and her memoirs as being a really difficult experience that I think was shared by almost all of the women who ended up heading the women's services across uh, you know, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, etc. Right. You, you write at one point, uh, Hobby, right from the start, decided to overcome what she lacked in experience and status with tenacity. The day before her first press conference, she stayed up all night practicing answers to all the questions she anticipated the press would ask about the program. The next day, reporters peppered her with inquiries about the Women's Corps, all of which she anticipated, but few of which had much to do with women's fitness for service. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners the nature of most of the questions that she was asked in this press conference? It really tells us something about America at this point in time. Yeah, it's, uh, the, people will probably be unsurprised to learn that almost all of them were about their clothes. Uh, you know, it was questions about will they be able to wear makeup? What will their hair look like? Uh, you know, will they be given girdles? Of course, you know, critically militarily important questions about this force uh, were being asked by the press at the time. And in many ways, you know, I hate to say it, but a lot of members of the press were complicit in disparaging these women who were really just trying to sign up to serve their country. They fixated on things like the the color of women's underwear who joined the army. It was just absurd. Um, there was a full-on slander campaign in 1943 that was started by a member of the press, um, which basically implied that the women of the Army Corps were prostitutes. You know, it was just horrific tropes that were trotted out by the press and, um, you know, really distracted from the ultimate point, particularly for women like Ovita Kalpabi, who we're trying to run a military organization and we're being distracted by questions about hair length and you know, eyeshadow and things like that, uh, which were totally beside the point, but became the main headlines about the Women's uh, Army Corps. And that is, is such a shame, but quite frankly, is something that we see even today in conversations about women in uniform. Um, so, you know, she she handled it with incredible savvy and her staying up all night, uh, you know, served her well. But it it really it grates on, you know, contemporary readers and certainly someone like me who just is totally confounded and befuddled by the fact that this is what we decided to focus on when we when the first uh, group of women decided to sign up and serve their country. We were mostly concerned about their their skirt length. Right. It's incredible. Your book, of course, goes on to talk about uh, how similar efforts and organizations were taken up uh, in other branches of the military and, 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 and the way in which some of these other uh, branches of the military tried, at least, to avoid some of the mistakes that were made by the Army with their rather rocky rollout of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. And, uh, and, of course, we can read all kinds of fascinating stories about 
how these women were ultimately trained, the way in which ultimately black women were allowed uh, into the ranks, uh, at least to, 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 to some extent. I want to be sure to ask you about something that was a complete shock to me. And this is at a point in the book when you are talking about the incredibly brave nurses uh, who were stationed in the Philippines, uh, including one nurse named Dorothy Still. And um, I think the the point is made that uh, the the moment the, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, those nurses in the Philippines and at Pearl Harbor became the first women in uniform engaged in World War II. You tell us that at this point in time, in at least certain sectors of the American public, there was a really disparaging attitude about women who would become nurses. Uh, and I was just shocked by this. I'd never heard this before, and still I'm trying to wrap my head around such a, an absurd notion. Can you just briefly say a word about this? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked. Nurses tend to be the sort of forgotten heroes of uh you know, both women's military history and just military history more broadly. Um, these, first of all, there were an extraordinary number of women who served, I think, in the Army. There were over 50,000. In the Navy, I think there were over 10. Um, and like you said, they were on the front lines. I mean, they, if they weren't on the front lines, they were a mile behind it, bringing men off the battlefield, doing in kind of crazy things like flying into combat zones, picking up troops and hauling them back out, and then crash landing in the Pacific, uh, you know, halfway through. And Dorothy Still is an incredible example of that. Um, you know, she is just such an important um, figure in the book because she's a reminder that for so many women nurses, um, you know, they spent most of this time in captivity um, in, the, in the Philippines in this case, but in other places as well. And their stories are just absolutely fascinating. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the nurses. They are, they, I try as much as possible to bring in their incredible stories because, uh, you know, often we think of, of these women as being on the front, you know, on the, on the home front and not on the front lines. And the nurses have some of the best stories of being in combat, in the meat of it, in the meat grinder. Um, and, you know, the nurses, they definitely deserve their due credit. Absolutely. And the fact that uh, when uh, the Japanese were bearing down on Corregidor and, 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 all kinds of, 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 of people were being evacuated, including many nurses, that some nurses needed to and willingly chose to stay because mm-hmm. when that inevitable uh, sweep of the Japanese forces would, would come and they would be, and, 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 and uh, military men would be taken prisoner, they would receive absolutely no medical care whatsoever in their captivity, or at least that was the, the belief. And, uh, so the only medical care they could possibly receive would be if some of the American nurses were captured as well. And you tell us that, that these nurses, if given a choice, were more than willing to stay. And uh, mm-hmm. that, kind of, that, that is exactly why your book is given the title that it is. Absolutely right. I mean, the nurses are in some ways the pinnacle of what the, the sort of American integrity that you would expect of World War II veterans. Um, you know, and I include that story very specifically because this was right at the start of the war. They had no idea what they were getting into. And in many cases, this meant years of captivity. But when given, you know, the, the United, the Allied forces had a good sense that they were 
losing the, this particular battle when the Japanese invaded, um, and they were trying to evacuate as many people as possible at a certain point, among them, of course, being the American nurses, um, because they knew that women were not treated well in any war, but especially by Japanese forces, um, and they had, there was precedent around that. But the women, many of the women who were asked if they wanted to get on the last flights out, on the last submarines out, simply said, my job is to take care of American soldiers, and I will continue to do that until the war is over. And they signed up for an indefinite captivity, um, which, as I said, in many cases meant years in captivity. I think I was reading um, just the other day about Ruby Bradley, who's a a nurse who ended up at the end of war 84 pounds um, after spending most of it in captivity, uh, mainly because she was giving her rations to uh, kids on the base who had been born uh, during captivity. So these were incredibly, incredibly um, heroic and inspiring women. And it's really important for me personally, that we know those stories, because as I said before, I think they're often forgotten. They're the most forgotten in many ways of these forgotten women. Right. Your book tells the story of the women who worked, you say, in an extraordinarily diverse set of military occupations. They served as pilots, aircraft trainers, photo interpreters, gunnery instructors, radio men, metalsmiths, machinist mates, chemists, code breakers, classification experts, lab technicians, translators, parachute riggers, ordnance experts, weather observers, control tower operators, mechanics, truck drivers, radar men, quartermasters, pigeon trainers, and much more. In these and many other roles, American women in uniform had a direct and outsized impact on the U.S. war effort. The story told in your book, Valiant Women, the extraordinary American service women who helped win World War II, published by Mariner. Lena Andrews, congratulations on a superb book, and thank you for being my morning show guest. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight.